friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and from all of us here at the Catholic Association, from all of us at Conversations with Consequences, and we'd like to say that we're very thankful for you our listeners. For the bottom of the hour, we have Father Roger Landry, who always rounds out our show with a beautiful homily. He will be joining us for a longer segment. I wanted to talk to him today because he just came back from the Holy Land, where he was guiding a pilgrimage of uh, young men and women. And I wanted to hear about the Holy Land and the way it informs our understanding of the gospel, especially in this time when we're preparing for Christmas. But first, I know we talk a lot about dignity of life, issues, especially vulnerable pre-born human life, pregnant moms and their babies. We talk a lot about that on the show on Conversations with Consequences, but it really is an issue that galvanizes us, and it should galvanize every Catholic, because in a world where the most vulnerable are discarded and, and are made part of that terrible throwaway culture that Pope Francis talks about, in that world, how can anything go right? What can we expect from a culture that sacrifices their own babies? on the altar of sexual liberation. Yes, we do spend a lot of time talking about these things. We do so because we are really moved, moved for the plight of babies. I'm happy to have my TCA colleague, Lee Sneed, with me as we chat with Dr. John Brachalski. He is OBGYN, a pro-life OBGYN at Divine Mercy Care and Tepeyac Clinic in the D.C. area. He serves so many women and babies as an OBGYN, also travels across the nation sharing a pro-life message and helping women choose life. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. As co-hostess, before we bring Dr. Brachowski on, I'd love to chat with you about one of the many things we have in common. We're both adoptive mothers. And our experiences are different, but I'll talk about mine first. I have three sons, all adopted domestically as newborns. I have a 16, almost 17-year-old. And then after he was born, we adopted twins. Um, nice. Sometimes I, I do hate to share my story as much as I love to preach the joys of adoption to anyone interested because it wasn't very long. It didn't take us very long to, to get matched with a birth mother. Um, in fact, it was about six weeks with our first, between our first meeting with the adoption agency, getting chosen by birth parents, and then having my newborn baby in, in my arms. Six weeks? Twin, six weeks. About six weeks from the first meeting, and then it was about one to two weeks before the due date that we found out we'd been chosen and so that's amazingly it was amazing and then when we actually worked with another catholic medical hero uh, dr hilgers for a while and then we spent some time abroad and we just still weren't getting pregnant and i thought well you know we took a break and i thought well maybe we should get going again my husband said you know this is actually great not having to worry about this month to month let's just adopt again we we love our son let's just adopt again and we did and 48 hours after we had turned in all of our background work and paperwork etc i was in the delivery room no 
being born. <laughs> yeah. 48 hours. So it happened fast both times. Wait, I so Lee, it, you were, you saw your children being born? The twins, not the first. That's um, spectacular. Was 12 years old, I think, maybe. 12, 12 hours. 12 hours. Yeah. I have a sadness in my, I love my adopted daughter and I, I give thanks for her day and night. And I'm, I, I feel sad that I didn't know her for the first months of her life, that I wasn't at her birth, that I wasn't in the beginning when I first fell in love with her. I thought about this all the time and it hurt me that I wasn't there for her. Now, I, as I see her developing so well and so beautifully, I don't think about that so much, but definitely it was, it was a sadness for me. So I'm, I'm really happy that you had them right from Thank the beginning. You. That's very, yeah, very nice. It's always relative too, because like, so you had that experience to compare with your biological children. For me, I didn't have biological children, so I wish that I had sort of known them in the womb, uh, you know, and been able to be with them from the first moment. And I mean, although we like to say they were in our hearts, there's something about, there's something very physical about a mother-child relationship, especially in those early days. And well, and, and for me, I was lucky that I worked with a wonderful lactation consultant and a lot of women don't know it's possible, but I was able to induce lactation. Were you really? Yes. And, so and, the, and they were, and they were newborns. cooperate with you finally. And they were newborns because I, I, I know sometimes people try to do that with older babies mm -hmm. and that's very difficult and it's I think it's a, maybe a little hard on the baby who's <laughs> been drinking from a bottle too. that process the process of falling in love with your children and having your children fall in love with you for you maybe it was a little different because they were newborns but many moms mm -hmm. by adoption and fathers by adoption we do this uh, when the children are a little older and it's it's really a lovely process it's very different from the from giving birth and, and receiving the children as newborns or right from our own bodies but it's so pretty and I was actually talking to my adopted daughter is now 14 and uh, on the way to school a couple days ago I was telling her that adoption is the way that God relates to each of us by that's how he chose to relate to us he adopts right. us and he makes us his children through adoption I was telling her you see it is such a lovely elevated dignified noble thing that God chose it God chose that as the vehicle by which he would communicate with us. He would make us his own. And so I'm sure I've said this to her before, but I, I think it really registered this time. I told her, you know, you're a very special girl because you have your birth parents somewhere and I'm sure they love you and think of you all the time and we pray for them and they pray for you, I'm very sure. And now you have this relationship with us that is very, that it mirrors the relationship of God mm -hmm. with his children, with his human children. Yeah, and I think that's a story that needs to be retold to our children over and over again because, you know, they're, they mature so fast and they're little minds and their souls change all the time and they relate to that information in a different way. So yeah, I think it only gets better. Now the reason, Lee, that you and I wanted to talk on the show about this particular topic about adoption is because October is Respect Life Month mm -hmm. and adoption is the loving option as my daughter was holding my daughter was holding a sign on the side of the street a couple days ago. <laughs> my son did that too. Yeah? He said, yep, he said adoption is a loving option. It's the same sign. Yep, all those mm -hmm. friends actually handed him that sign when they all went down to the pro-life march. <laughs> yeah, and it's so such yeah. a beautiful sign because truly, once you have an adopted child, once you know an adopted child, you realize there are no extra children. There are no unwanted children. There are no children that ought to be destroyed. You know, every single child is this perfect gift from God. If mm -hmm. only we can find the grace to receive them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. let's hope that October Respect Life Month, there's lots of demonstrations, lots of thoughtful dialogue about what's better. You know, I had this talk with somebody. I invited a, a lady. A 
woman I know, I don't know her very well, but I invited her to, to go to the march with us. This was a chain for life a few days ago that's held all across the United States. She said to me, you know, I would never personally, this is a very common refrain, I would never personally have an abortion, but, you know, I worry about all those children that are born and then abused. And maybe it would have been better for them. And I said to her, she didn't know I had an adopted child at the time. So I said to her, well, you know, there's other options. There's more options than death or abuse. I said, there's adoption, for instance, like, you know, my daughter. She goes, oh, I didn't know. She said, you know, you're right. I'm going to come to that march. <laughs> so, That's wonderful. Good evangelizing. <laughs> that is good. Event. Yeah, I think we need to change hearts one at a time and try to create that culture one person at a time. Create the culture where abortion is unthinkable. And that adoption is always celebrated because I've had people even say when I say like oh well my children are adopted they'll say oh I'm sorry what (laughs) what (laughs) are you kidding it's the best thing that has ever ever happened to me and you know I I like to think it's pretty good for them too but (laughs) I'm sure it's wonderful for them yeah so anyway it's just so I think that people have some ideas that are stuck in the past with maybe some bad practices they've heard a few horror stories and it tarnishes the whole beautiful practice well you know there's always there's humans involved in it so there's going to be mistakes and things are going to go wrong sometimes. But for sure, it's the loving option. Lee, it's really wonderful talking to another adoptive mom about these beautiful concepts. I hope that our uh, our listeners are moved by our experiences. Me too. I love talking about adoption. I could talk about it all day long. You know, now let's bring on the phone Dr. John Bruchelski. He is a physician and OBGYN extraordinaire. He heads up the Tepeyac Clinic in Northern Virginia, and he is also the man behind Divine Mercy. Care. He's an OBGYN who has devoted his life after his conversion to making the world of OBGYN a world that is completely welcoming to the child, sees the child as a patient, sees the mother and the child as a unit, in fact, sees the mother and the, whole, and the father and the child as a unit, sees the whole family. So let's talk to... Dr. John Bruchelski. Dr. Bruchelski, we were so happy to see that the University of Notre Dame awarded you with the Evangelium Vitae Award for <laughs> next year. And my husband, Carter Sneed, wrote in the press release. I, I have to say, too, I have to interrupt myself to say that I can't tell you the number of text messages and phone calls I've gotten from people in this community who have been patients of yours, who have had babies delivered by you, who are asking me to book them seats and I have to remind them that I don't work there but I will, I will try to get to them do the best I can I'll direct them to the you're dealing with anyway. a superstar Lee yes I know oh um, please yeah I know so anyway people are dying to get to you so my husband wrote in the press release Dr. Bruchowski is a shining example of the church's untiring commitment to directly serving mothers children and families <laughs> Your work is such a vital component to our pro-life commitment as Catholics, and your work, Doctor, has been spurned on by your own conversion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Lee, thank you so much uh, for the kindness. Uh, Sometimes I get a little uh, awkward with uh, being honored for not uh, killing babies and trying to care for those (laughs) who are weakest in our community. And with all the people that I've delivered, because I'm so old, it's all paid advertisement, as they would say. (laughs) And uh, so I'm really humbled and just overwhelmed. I'm a poster child for the uh, Catholics uh, growing up since the 1960s. All the goods and bads of, um, of what that means. 
I've uh, lived through that, including buying the drinking the Kool-Aid or buying the lie that women deserve abortion as health care. So I wanted to liberate women from their fertility to give them happiness and joy and peace. And I ended up practicing what I preached because you know, my daddy, uh, who was an incredible man who loved the Lord, loved Our Lady, loved the church, loved loved our country, he also taught in, in a high school these very principles. Well, because I believed in a woman's right to choose, I went ahead and uh, learned how to terminate and abort all size babies, provide all sorts of contraception. And it was only because of my mom and dad, I think, who dedicated me to Our Lady, but also so many people out there, so many of the incredible pro-life movement, those people who are just silent, they prayed for conversion. And thanks be to God, through circumstances that I cannot even imagine, but through patients and through other doctors and through other people and through students, I came to my senses where I had an experience with the mother of God a few times in my life. And all of a sudden, the truth became alive. And it was always about consequences. The convert, you know, I I love the program, conversation with consequences, right? (laughs) Well, it's now about the conversation of conversion, but it's not with words. It's with your heart and it's with your actions. I see what your program does, Dr. Christie. It moves me to the point that these people put their heart, the love of Christ, into what they're doing. Oh, thank and you, Doctor. And that's the key. Oh, no, I'm, I'm serious. So, uh, I'm trying to prep. I, I was looking just at who you had on and whether it's the heartbeat bill, which is politics, or whether it's servicing, which is, you know, social, you know, psychiatry. You talk about people who have heart in their work, because once again, words have a very difficult meaning these days. We, mm-hmm. we, we oh my God, mercy. It, it means different things to different people. Women, I can't even use the word women anymore. Women. Recently at the hospital, at the hospital, I got hit on, oh, no, these are birthing people, John. And oh. so the whole world's changing. But what does transpire is the love of Jesus. And the best example of that was the mother of God. John, and that moment I, that moment of conversion that you had, it must have turned your entire life upside down. But I also, <sighs> I also imagine that you brought so much beautiful energy to it, like a real enthusiasm. Is that true or am I imagining that wrong? I am sure that you are correct. It's very hard to capture in my heart and in my world words what happened. But I can tell you, I felt loved. I felt loved for the first time in my life. I felt the love of my parents. I felt the love of all these family members who prayed for me, knowing that I was kind of off the rails, so to speak, and I was destroying life and I was hurting women. And yet they just prayed for me. And when you meet Jesus and Mary heart to heart, as St. Francis de Sales would say, or eye to eye, or your whole life changes. And you can never go back, meaning the holes, the pain that he suffered so that I could become whole again and come to know him. And once again, it's not the work I do. It's not the work you do, but it's the the knowledge and the relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about it here at the office all the time. Health is based on relationships that are sacrificial. Mm -hmm. The relationship between you and your family, the relationship between you and your physician or your healthcare provider, but also the most important between you and Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And ever since, um, what is it, Constantine and his mom kind of introduced this so, you know, thousands of years ago, 
the world has been pushing back and it just seems as if we've gotten to a point now where words no longer matter, everything's become fossilized, and it's only going to be the love of Christ and the love of us left here on this earth doing his, building his kingdom come. When you were describing this, the way that you experienced uh, your conversion, it reminded me of, of the very real, of the reality that when, when people who are pro-life, whether we're Catholic or of, of other denominations, when we propose that there is, uh, there is a possibility of change, that you can come back from the other side, it's a, it's a proposal of mercy, of real love and mercy. And, and when, when people, yes. when we experience it, when, when maybe some of us have been on the other side like you and have come back, and, and I wasn't always passionately pro-life, when you experience that, that wonderful welcome of saying, your past doesn't matter, we've all made mistakes, God's, yes. God's merciful bounteous love is ready to wash all over you and, and just make you happy. Yeah, no, it's so true. And that in small ways, yeah. too, with, with, with the um, Sacrament of Reconciliation, Catherine Jean Lopez is such a great social media presence to remind us all to run to the confessional every day because, you know, even if you take a little step outside, you want to be back in, inside. And you know, it's possible for anybody. I, I absolutely agree. That mercy and love breeds hope. And that hope, it becomes contagious and it fills your being. When I left the hills, when I left the hill, I heard, she said, go show yourself to the priest. And I can tell you that that confession coming off the hill after that experience that I had was the most wonderful, cleansing, mm -hmm. peaceful <laughs> moment wow. that I can even. And so when I talk to folks, I would love them to come through our offices, through listening to your program and go directly to confession because there is a certain consequence. When you talk about conversations with consequences, I think about it, this, this, this conversation is for my consequence. It's, it's helping me have a softer heart for others and to know that I am loved. And I want to share that with my female, pa you know, I'm a gynecologist, so it's my, with my patients. And it's all about, especially if you're, you know, we're all in need. As, as Mother Teresa told me, oh no, Johnny, <laughs> you, you see enough, you bring Cal you bring Calcutta to Fairfax because <laughs> even wealthy people need forgiveness and peace. No, so you're you're so right. And Catherine uh, Lopez is just a tremendous voice out there in the wilderness for, for so many of us. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have the great Dr. Bruchowski with us and also my colleague Lee Sneed as co-hostess. But Dr. Bruchowski, you are famous everywhere for the way that you've been able to create an OBG practice with many other doctors that work with you and nurses and and in a way that welcomes the whole woman all her fertility all her great possibilities all the wonderful possible futures of her life and welcomes her whole family and her husband and the children and how did you create such a such an amazing place um, she told me the blessed mother told me what to do <laughs> there you go. I mean I am not I, I listen to you I mean I I listen to people say this and it had nothing to I am humbled by it but this is not something that I came up with. Johnny, be the best doctor you can be. See the least of your brothers and sisters and follow the teachings of my son's church. Once again, people ask me for business plans and it's almost a joke with me because I, business plan? Mm -hmm. This was a matter of just simply following this, this mother to 
wherever, whatever door they opened. So I knew coming off that hill that I understood for the first time Humanae Vitae. I understood for the first time the catechism. I don't understand how it happened, but I can tell you that there was a deep connection of, the, of what it means to be human. And that also just transpired to my patients, meaning care for the whole person. Don't suppress fertility. Cooperate with it. Cooperate. Listen. It's slow medicine. This is not something that you can do with a quick test or a quick answer. This is about meeting people where they're at. This is about giving them the best the best advice you can, whether it's allopathic or naturopathic medicine. You present them options. And then you give them good science, and then you allow the Holy Spirit to enter through good prayer, body, soul, and spirit. You work on the forgiveness of parts of your life, and then you just begin to put into play the therapy or the treatment, and it, the good Lord does all the hard work. In our case, I just knew that I had to partner with all the different pregnancy centers in the region in order to fulfill the love of Jesus to my community, to build, to allow us to become a vehicle for the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was literally just going to them and saying, hey, send your patients to us. We'll find a way to pay. The first few years, we were for profit. We try to pay it out of our profit margin. But then as, you know, medical uh, issues became, you know, traumatic with malpractice premiums and, you know, government-run health care and the lack of religious freedom, you simply, we went not for profit because I couldn't go back on those three divine, those three commands. I would be disobedient if I did that. And so I encourage everyone out there when they come visit, uh, this is part of the secret of this place. It's be the best doc you can, try to see the underserved in your daily work, and then lastly, follow the teachings of my son's church. And you can't go wrong, meaning it's a challenge, but you can't go wrong. There's peace and joy, and I can go to sleep at night knowing that I've, you know, I've served the Lord today. Because as you said, once you get filled with the Spirit, you got to share it with other people. John, when, um, when you, you and I understand what we're talking about, Lee understands, I think our listeners understand the beauty of, of Tepeyac and of your work. We are entering into times now politically which are, are more and more fraught there's less and less understanding of our of our point of view of, of our holistic point of view that that accepts the entire woman and her children as valuable and, and, and tender children of God but what would you say what do you say when confronted with the idea that when a woman is pregnant with a child that she didn't plan or it's unexpected that she and the child are somehow in opposition because I feel that that is the general idea behind so many attacks you know the woman is is in uh, danger of her life being destroyed by the child in some yes. way. Yes, oh, oh Grazi, you're you're ap you're absolutely uh, on the point. One of the principles of Tepiac here is you never pit mom against the baby. You never, because I have to care for both patients, and just like faith and reason, they go together. Now, for the person who thinks abortion is health care, it's brutality and death to the child, and it's hurtful towards the woman, either in the short term or the long term. For instance, the rape patient. You know, the act of intimacy or the act of bar barbarism by the man on the woman is already there. The abortion just makes you going after, it kind of makes you go after the other innocent life here. Mm -hmm. That damage is already there internally. Right. And so what I have found is, is that you never pit mom against the baby. You get, try to get them far, you try to get them both as far along as possible. And that's the key. And as long as you show people 
good science, whether it's the heartbeat, even though even the heartbeat now people are getting so hardened, oh no, just tell me where to go to get the abortion. If you are able to show them women who have survived the experience they're going through, plus good science, so it's experiential, just like uh, John Paul would talk about with his phenomenology, but it's also about good science. There's a heartbeat. There's a new life. You know, this we can get through this together. There's a way to work through this so both can win. That's the key I have found over time. It's just meeting people where they're at, telling them that there is a... Uh, and more into you know, a, a kind of a healthier way to get through this challenge rather than ending the pregnancy because that only ends the life. It doesn't end all the other issues that brought you to that point. In fact, it might exacerbate them. Oh, I just wanted to ask you about the flip side of that with women who are experiencing uh, secondary infertility, primary infertility, who wish to be pregnant, who are planning to get pregnant and can't. And you've got a, a, a program called Hannah's Hope. And can you tell us about this outreach? Sure, sure. Hannah's Hope is a conversation that we have with women struggling for fertility. Fertility is a desire. It's not a diagnosis. Infertility is a not technically a diagnosis. It's a it's a common it's a it's a description. And so we try to bring together the best of medicine to show them real options of how we can help treat underlying causes through NAPRO technology, through surgery, how we can refer people in and out. But also when none of that's working and you're beating yourself up again, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up, not, you know, because either, you know, you think the infertility is not explainable or maybe it's due to your own behavior, that the suffering by leaning into the suffering through prayer, that suffering actually finds meaning. And that meaning can be some of the greatest growth experiences in anyone's life. But you don't come right out and say that. You kind of work with people and accompany them and walk with them. Hannah's hope for us, um, how do I say, we're a mass unit. The mother of God said, Johnny, patch people up and send them back out to the front line. <laughs> so your, your audience are truly the frontline heroes of today. <laughs> the pro-life folks uh, in front of the clinics, the people who pray that silent prayer every day for their family, the mom who doesn't throw out her daughter who either got pregnant or had an abortion, walking with them, accompanying them. My job is simply <laughs> to just patch you up like a, like a forward mash unit and send you back out into the fight. And it's not easy at times, but the Holy Spirit is never outdone in generosity. And I have found that whether you are a evangelical or a Roman Catholic or a Orthodox or a, a Jew or a, or a nothing, <laughs> this approach resonates with people because there's an authenticity, there's an integration, and there's an attempt at listening. And it's like you said, conversations with consequences. Every patient we see, every history I take, every physical exam we do, every lab test we do, it's about conversations with consequences. And we literally know that it's a body, soul, and spirit integrated approach to health. End of discussion. Dr. Um, Burchowski, you know, it's amazing to think of the fortune of your patients, the 
blessedness of your patients. So many doctors now think of themselves as vending machines, you know, just delivering whatever the whatever the patient wants, whether or not it's good for them. And and you really see the whole you see the whole person and you see them as children of God. That's very apparent. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh-huh. I know that your time Dr. is extremely Christy, valuable. You. Uh, you are so kind, and thank you for everything. And uh, we'll keep each other in our prayers. Definitely, doctor. Okay. Um, thank you, doctor. See you in April. <laughs> And also, oh my gosh, Lee, I can't wait. <laughs> it's, a, it's always a good night. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more, learn more about Dr. B's wonderful work, check out tepeyakobgyn.com. That's spelled T-E-P-E-Y-A-C-O-B-G-Y-N and Divine Mercy Care at divinemercycare.org. And congrats again on your wonderful award, Dr. Bachowski. Oh, please. Th- thank you. Uh, God bless you. Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're happy to have Father Roger Landry back with us. You know Father Roger. He's the one who gives us our amazing homily every week. Takes so much time and so much effort and so much preparation to give us really important uh, words to prepare us for Sunday's Mass. He's always so good to us. He is a priest out of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts. He also works closely with the Holy See, spending much of his time in New York. He also just made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land just ahead of Christmas and has a great message for us this Advent season. Welcome to the show, Father. It's great to be back with you, Gracie, uh, after I punctuate with an exclamation point a little bit of every program with the gospel. I know. You're so wonderful to spend that time with us. I can't believe that you made that commitment and then you stuck with it all the way since the beginning. I know it's a huge a huge commitment from you because you put so much time and effort into preparing the perfect homily. But listen, I, I love conversation with consequences. I listen to every program. But at the same time, as a Christian disciple and as a Catholic priest, there's no more consequential conversation than the one that the Lord wants to have with us every week. And it's a real joy for me, even though I'm often recording these at four o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday <laughs> or a Thursday, even though like it, it, it does cost a little bit of my blood, I am thrilled at how many people are able, through that means, to prepare for that conversation that Jesus wants to have with us at Mass. And so I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity every week to be able to at least catalyze that conversation. Well, Father, one of the things we're, we're hoping at, um, at, our, at our show here, at our radio show, Conversations of Consequences, is next year for 2022 is to collate all your beautiful homilies and put them out separately so that people can click through those and, and find uh, your words and, and your, your beautiful prayers. Every homily is such a prayer. Not to mention advanced plus placement phonetics training from Lowell, Massachusetts. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, the, you know, people in Massachusetts don't speak so differently from people in Miami, Father. <laughs> We're not so different. Well, well, thanks. Thanks for that inclusivity, Gracie. But most <laughs> people in the U.S. would disagree with you. I never hear an accent. People say, you have an accent. I say, no, I don't. I speak very, very perfect English. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father... Um, we wanted to have you on and you were giving us some, some more of your valuable time because you just came back from the Holy Land and you made a special pilgrimage. And I believe you got there right before Israel closed its borders. So please tell our listeners what you were doing in the Holy Land, who you were leading and what beautiful Advent um, opportunities you had there. We were very lucky. We, we left um, the Friday right after Thanksgiving and the, that Sunday, Israel closed its borders to outsiders for two weeks 
because of the Omicron um, coronavirus. And so we were able to get there. There were only three American groups in the entire country, and there was only one group from Spain. I mean, it was the four of us <laughs> with all the holy sites straight to ourselves. And so I, I had 24 pilgrims with me from this great program for which I'm the chaplain of the New York chapter of the Leonine Forum, which is founded by Father Ani Panula and Mitch Borsma at the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C. About 10 years ago, five years ago, it started in New York. Uh, two years ago, it started in L.A. Last year, it started in Chicago. So we've got chapters in four cities and growing. And it really tries to communicate Catholic social teaching to young Catholic professionals to help them first to live it, but then to incorporate it into their overall life, including their professions. And to help them grow in their faith, we try to take them on pilgrimages to the Holy Land, to Rome, to other spots. We'll, we'll eventually likewise take them. And so it's an extraordinary opportunity for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps. As in Advent this time, we were able to go out to meet Christ, who comes to us in history, mystery, and majesty, and get to be transformed by him so that from this point forward, we're able to walk with him in life far more deeply, because we call the Holy Land the fifth gospel. Once you've actually been on the Sea of Galilee, once you've seen the place where Jesus was born and laid in the manger, once you enter into the tomb from which he left, and you bring his risen body back into that tomb in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, I mean, those experiences positively mark you for life. This was my 12th time to the Holy Land. For most of the pilgrims, it was their first time, and I love to see their pupils dilate when they come to the sacred, most sacred spots in the world, and they recognize that everything that they believed up until now about the faith has a historicity behind it that they never really doubted, but it just wasn't that strong. And, you know, I, I, the, the way that they hear the gospel from that point forward, the way they live their, they live their faith is going to be impacted. And to be um, a privileged witness, to see those types of transformations is one of the coolest things I do as a priest. That was my experience uh, when I did my pilgrimage. My, I went with my husband and... and um both of us were so everything in our heads was so transformed by by being in that uh, the actual place and feeling the uh, the heat and the the lack of humidity which was a big deal for us because we're from Miami but the the lack the the the, the quality of the air and the difficulty of of moving from place to place in the intense heat that we were experiencing when we were there which maybe you didn't experience now um, it made everything that we that we hear in the gospel so human like the the human aspect of it um, struck us very strongly in a way that sometimes hearing the Gospels, um, those words that we're so accustomed to, sometimes are, doesn't do that for us. When we're meditating on the scenes, the great saints tell us to use all five of our senses. Yeah. And when we're there, like first time I was in the Holy Land back in 1993, when I went down to the Dead Sea, it was 52 degrees Celsius. For those who are good at math listening to it, that was 126 degrees exactly. Fahrenheit. <laughs> and like, you ponder that. When Jesus and the apostles are walking long distances, that was the temperature for half the year. Yes. And it gives you a totally different way of looking at it. Likewise, at other times when you've got the radiational cooling at night, why it would mean so much that Bartimaeus the blind man throws off his cloak and runs to Jesus not knowing if he's going to be able to find it because that literally was a security blanket at night when it would get really cold there. And so in addition to temperature, you are able to 
hear the sounds, you're able to see the topography, you're able to hold mustard seeds in your hands, for example, and mm-hmm. really see what Jesus is talking about, that eventually this is going to grow so that the birds of the air are able to find nests in its branches. So many aspects come totally alive when you're there, and that's why I think it's so important first for Catholics to try to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Why every Muslim in a lifetime has this commitment to make the Hajj to Mecca, but Christians don't on our own, with our own freedom, make that commitment and go to Holy Land. That's what's made me bald, scratching my head for so long. <laughs> but then the, then the second thing is the Christians in the Holy Land really need our support because there's been a hemorrhaging of Christians in the Holy Land. For example, Nazareth used to be over 50% Catholic, now it's 20%. Bethlehem used to be 80%, now it's about 45%. The old city of Jerusalem used to be 25%, and now it's less than 2%. And so for a lot of these Christian churches there, they come alive only when pilgrims come there, and that's a means by which our faith is able to overflow those church boundaries when they're able to see people singing and praying, etc., because there aren't enough Christians still within the Holy Land to bring all of those sanctuaries alive. And so I'd strongly urge people to follow the footsteps of Jesus and the call to go meet him there in the Holy Land so that having followed his footsteps there, we can make the paths here in the United States a little bit more Christ-like. And historically, the, our church always had that, that idea of, of, of making an important visit to the Holy Land, did it not? All through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance? So it was always an indulgenced spot that, it, like if you were given 10 years of bread and water three days a week because you'd done something atrocious, you could always substitute it by a plenary indulgence of a pilgrimage to one of these great spots. And because you were risking your life, for example, to go to, go to the Holy Land, that would be a plenary indulgence. But beyond that, all of life is a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. We walk through this world and we're hoping to finish that pilgrimage, seeing God smiling at us face to face at the celestial Jerusalem. And one of the best means to remind us that our entire life is a pilgrimage is actually to go on pilgrimages to these sanctuaries, whether it's the Holy Land or whether it's Rome or whether it's Santiago de Compostela or Lourdes or Fatima, you name it. Pilgrimages are really important for us to grasp that our faith is dynamic. Jesus never tells us, stay where you are. He's always saying, come, follow me, and go. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming my gospel to every creature. And so that dynamic aspect of our faith really is brought into relief anytime we get up from our pew in our parish churches and we follow Jesus and start to find him out in the middle of the street there in the Holy Land or in Rome or elsewhere, so that we're able to take that pattern of sanctity back to the streets of our neighborhoods. Father, what about short pilgrimages that we can do around our homes? How does that work? So there's a huge tradition, for example, in May and October, of making pilgrimage to Marian sites. And that doesn't mean you have to go to this huge Marian shrine. It can be that you go to the Marian altar in your parish church or a Marian grotto in a church 10 miles away, etc. So those little pilgrimages can likewise help. It's a great means by which I think to get guys to pray. In my experience as a priest, 
there are a lot of women who are very naturally contemplative, and they were able to sit in a pew, either or kneel on a kneeler for an hour before Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. If you try to take a teenage boy yes. and have him do a similar <laughs> holy hour, like he's going to be crawling off the ceilings. But if you say, hey, listen, we're going to do this 10-mile journey to make to pray the rosary along the way, and if you do it with no lip, I'll take you out for dinner, I'll take you out for ice cream or anything else like this. Those are the types of ways in which guys are able to expend a lot of nervous energy, and they're able to pray in a manly way along the way. And so I've always used pilgrimages as a particularly effective way to get to the half of the human race with Y chromosomes. And what about the idea of pilgrimages as a way to relieve ourselves of the stains of our sins, as a way of penance? I think that a lot of that's been lost. Our parish has a pilgrimage that we do every year. It just happened last week, and it's beautiful. Five or six hundred people walk ten miles to um, Nuestra Señora de la Caridad, the, our nearest shrine, the patroness of Cuba, it happens to be. And uh, But there's there's a lot of joy, but not, not a lot of sense of, um, of penance in the pilgrimage. In, in our life, we're, we've got to be excellent at two things, Gracie. We've got to be excellent at feasting and fasting. Mm-hmm. We've got to be excellent at joy. And we've got to be excellent at asceticism. And we can live both of those in a good pilgrimage, right? Uh, and a good pilgrimage should have both that there's going to be a little bit of a penitential side to it. Like, for example, on our pilgrimage to the Holy Land, we got up to pray the Stations of the Cross at 3.15 in the morning. Oh, wow. So that we could, we could finish with a Mass at Calvary at 5. And, like, there are a lot of people who haven't gotten up early in a really long time. Mm-hmm. And they want to shout before the first station, not about Jesus, but about me, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> and, but nonetheless, I, like, listen, you don't have to come, but a lot of people who have come on pilgrimages with me before have said that that was one of the most meaningful things that they've ever done. And, you know, that happens every pilgrimage, but there's, a, there's an asceticism, there's a sense of penance that's there. We can offer that penance up for our sins, or we can, because most of these things are indulgence activities, offer the sufferings, the small little physical sufferings, etc., that we have to endure for someone that we know and love who has died or somebody who's going through some type of very difficult time. So there's a penitential aspect to it. But the most important aspect of our faith is the feasting. Jesus has risen from the dead. He came so that his joy might be in us and our joy might be complete. And so there's got to be a feasting as well. And so one of the things that I always try to work into pilgrimages is a form of celebration, even if it's a day-long pilgrimage, that there'd be a good meal with some ice cream for me always, which is such an important (laughs) sweet, but perhaps a little bit of wine and things along the way, too, uh, to celebrate what we've done, because um, that type of natural joy can be the foundation for the supernatural joys God wants to give us along the way, preparing us for the eternal banquet in which that joy will know no end. Well, Father, we're almost out of time, and um, I don't want to hold you any longer than I have to. You're very busy. Uh, but tell us, can you give us some words? Uh, this will be this uh, will be airing just a few days before Christmas. We're almost at the end of Advent. Some of us have spent more time shopping and, and being frantic about all the preparations we have to make uh, than, than preparing our hearts. But what can we do in these last few days to really prepare our hearts for the coming of our Lord? The first thing that I'd encourage to do is to stop, if even for one minute, and just recollect that God is with us. Mm -hmm. What we mark at Christmas is the mystery of Emmanuel, that God is with us. 
And that's not a past tense. There was no expiration date to God being with us. He remains with us in the sacraments and even beyond the sacraments. And so for us to recognize that we're not alone during life is one of the most important things. The second thing I'd say is, as we begin to think about, you know, there's so much good in the generosity that we find in Chris, uh, at Christmas time. But a lot of the times we give in to some of the things of the age. Like, for example, we'll be generous in material things. Mm-hmm. And we'll send cards to everybody that just reminds them that we're thinking of them, that we care about them, etc. But, you know, I'd wonder, can we give more spiritual gifts to people? And when we're writing a card and signing it, can we really pray at least for 10 seconds, maybe even a Hail Mary for each person whom we're sending a card to supernaturalize the experiences so that we're much more conscious of the genuine reason for the season at a time in which there's a rampant secularism out there that forgets about God. But more than that, there are a whole bunch of, you know, commercial interests that try to hijack the season toward other goals, whereas for us, we really do have to stay focused. And that begins by slowing down, making room for God, and then trying to spread love of God in the little interactions as we're sharing our generosity with others that we want to share the divine giver at the same time. Well, thank you, Father, for those words, and and I will be taking them to heart, and I'm sure our listeners will be too. And uh, I hope you have a very blessed Christmas, Father. A joyous Christmas to you, to your to your family, Gracie, and uh, my prayers for all the listeners, even to this episode of Conversations with Consequences, as well as those who have tuned in over the course of the year. God wants to have a really consequential conversation with us this Christmas, as consequential as it was in the conversation with the shepherds, in the conversation with the Magi, in the basic conversation that even we would have with the beast there in the manger. Give God a chance. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Leonard, and it's an honor to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday, when we will enter into one of the most intriguing and sometimes bewildering dialogues in the Gospels. St. John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? Some commentators interpret this to mean that St. John the Baptist himself was imprisoned by Herod for saying his marriage to his sister-in-law and niece Herodias was adulterous, incestuous, and unlawful, couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't doing what everyone expected the long-awaited Messiah to do when he came, which is to reinstitute the kingdom of Israel, kick out foreign powers like the Romans and their vassals, like Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip, free captives like John, and overturn centuries of suffering and injustice. They say that John, who at the Jordan had indicated Jesus as the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, whose sandal strap he said he was unworthy to loosen, who he said had to increase while John decreased, was growing impatient at Jesus' seeming inaction, and had sent his followers to Jesus to state by their question, essentially, that if Jesus really were the Messiah, the one who was to come, he should start acting like it. Other commentators, like notably the great doctor of the church, St. Francis de Sales, the 400th anniversary whose death and birth into eternal life the church will mark this month on December 28th, 
said that John knew well and believed Jesus was indeed the one who was to come, but sent his disciples because they, out of frustration that John was in prison, were the ones who were questioning whether Jesus was truly the Messiah and why he wasn't behaving according to their politicized messianic expectations. He said that John sent his disciples to Jesus to reveal Jesus to them and to everyone once more as the Messiah, to help them like he had previously helped St. Andrew, St. John, and others at the Jordan to cling to Jesus and to detach themselves from him who was Jesus' precursor. One is, to, one is free to interpret the scene as if John himself were having doubts, but I'm with St. Francis de Sales in thinking that it was indeed the Baptist followers who were the ones with doubts and complaints as they grouped around John while John knew that they should be with the Messiah who had come. So he sent them with their question to Jesus so that Jesus would be able to show them that he was indeed the long-awaited one and help them recalibrate their false expectations. In response to their question whether he was the Messiah, Jesus immediately focused on deeds. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. All actions that Isaiah prophesied about the messianic job description that Jesus himself, when he was in his hometown synagogue and read the scroll from Isaiah, said were being fulfilled in their hearing. When Jesus instructed them to describe what they were hearing and seeing, it seems clear that Jesus was working miracles in their midst and that they were witnessing them live. In conversing with formerly blind, deaf, lame, leprous, dead people made whole. And they were hearing Jesus' words to the human person's fundamental poverty, which is a life without him. Jesus was doing, therefore, what sacred scripture had said the one who was to come was supposed to do. And that they should ponder and make their evaluation based on those deeds, rather than upon their worldly hopes for a political savior. Jesus finished by saying something super poignant. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. It was clear that up until that point, they were focusing far more on what Jesus was not doing rather than all he was, and they were offended. Jesus was not behaving as the Messiah they wanted. Many would similarly take offense at Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees would take offense at him because he healed people on the Sabbath, because he conversed and ate with sinners, because he didn't engage in their complicated man-made rituals of washing hands, pots, and jugs, because he didn't fast the way they did, and so many other reasons. The people of Nazareth took offense at Jesus in the synagogue, murmuring how could he be the Messiah if he were the supposed son of a carpenter. Nathaniel took offense at him, wondering if anything good could come from Nazareth. Some of Jesus' cousins took offense at him because they thought he was out of his mind, behaving in a way that got people to begin plotting his death. The rich young man took offense at him when Jesus challenged him to go sell what he had, give the money to the poor, and then come follow him. Many of his disciples took offense at him, when he proclaimed himself to be the true manna, the living bread come down from heaven, that they would have to gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood to have life in him. Such a teaching, they said, was too hard to endure, and they abandoned him. And most people on Calvary took offense at him, when he was mocked as an imposter by the chief priests, soldiers, passers-by, and even the criminals on his side, all saying the same thing, that if you are truly the Messiah, prove it by saving yourself and coming down from the cross. The only manifestation of his messianic identity would be such a display of worldly power. They all took offense at him. That brings us to our own reaction to Jesus' advent. Do we look to him as the long-awaited one, as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, or not? Do we accept Jesus on his own terms, on what he says and what he does? 
Or do we judge him according to our criteria of what we would want the Messiah to be doing? Many take offense at Jesus today, still, at his teachings they don't like, at the choices he makes with which they don't agree. They take offense because Jesus didn't eliminate all injustice in the world. And in fact, endured it like a supposed weakling, which is scandal even to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They take offense that Jesus founded the church and what they deem obviously unqualified people, like Peter, the apostles, and their successors. They take offense that Jesus called only men to be priests. They take offense over Jesus' sexual teachings, calling us to purity of heart and to, real, to the real meaning of marriage. They take offense over the way Jesus established the sacrament of penance to forgive our sins. They take offense over Jesus' identification with the poor, hungry, thirsty, naked, immigrants, sick, and imprisoned. And how he personally takes whatever we do or fail to do to them. They take offense over Jesus' summons to deny themselves, pick up their cross each day, and follow him on the way of the cross. They take offense at Jesus' summons to love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, do good to those who hate us, to turn the other cheek, to forgive 70 times, 7 times. They take offense at the Beatitudes. They take offense at the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. They take offense at so much. As armchair quarterbacks and backseat drivers, they take offense at what Jesus has said and done or at what he's failed to say or do. The church has its focus on the scene in Advent so that we can examine our expectations, our longings, and go from doubt and offense to faith and discipleship. Jesus is indeed the Messiah who is to come. And not only should we not look for another, but that we should take seriously the one who has come. We shouldn't cling to our own ideas. We shouldn't cling to our own guru, like the disciples of John were clinging to him. We should go to Jesus and rather than take offense, take full part in his messianic mission. Just like John the Baptist did with the doubts of his disciples, we should send and bring others to Jesus with their questions and help them to discover what we ourselves have joyfully re had revealed to us, that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of messianic hopes. We should help them recalibrate their longings to the actual Messiah rather than to recalibrate and judge the Messiah and Son of God according to their whims and wishes. At the end of this Sunday's Gospel, after G John's disciples had left, presumably were going to John to share all that they had seen and heard, Jesus praised John publicly so that everyone would be able to heed John the Baptist's words and work in the desert. John, Jesus said, wasn't a reed swayed by the wind or someone dressed in fine clothing, but a prophet and more than a prophet, the greatest born of woman and the messenger foretold who would prepare the way for the Messiah. This wasn't flattery, but a means by which to help people take John the Baptist seriously and his call to make straight the paths for the Messiah to come. Part of preparing the way for the Messiah is to remove the obstacles of worldly expectations for what we would want the Messiah to do, but instead to take him on his own terms. Jesus wants all of us to do the work of conversion John the Baptist sought to carry out at the Jordan. He wants us to become like John the Baptist and not vacillating like wind-blown reeds and not dressing according to worldly vanities, but in becoming true prophets, actualizing God's word and precursors, helping others to prepare the way for Jesus to come into their life. Because of his role in salvation history, John was the greatest born of woman. But then Jesus added, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. By our baptism, whereby we have become a child of God, by our life in the kingdom nourished by the sacraments, by the gospels in the New Testament, by the communion of the church, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and beyond, we are indeed blessed far more than John was, and to whom more is given, more is to be expected. 
Let's not take offense at this high calling we have as Jesus' disciples, but take advantage of all the means God gives us, including this Sunday's Mass, to live as children of the kingdom and help others to come to the King, Messiah, and Savior. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 